Silicon Valley programmer jobs. Fucking cat is meowing. So this happened while we were on hiatus, but I know that you and I talked about it a lot. At that point, we're still very excited about it. Captain Picard is, is coming back. Ooh. Yeah. Make it so. Make so, it so. Make did it you, so. Did you see this coming at all? No, not at all. I, I was stunned. In fact, I gasped when I saw I didn't know what I was watching. I was like, oh, it's a new Star Trek joint. You know, maybe it's like all the new actors or whatever. And then I, I couldn't believe what I saw. Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc's and, perfectly perfect head. Right. And and he's still himself. Like, I obviously grew up with the next generation. It was really my first meaningful foray into science fiction. And Jean-Luc Picard was just this, this titan of fiction and imagination for me, right? And I never expected that he would be brought into the here and now. I really thought that he was going to live far in my rear view mirror, much beloved and much missed. But here, here he is. They're, they're making a new show. All right. There were some surprises in the trailer, too. What's su- What surprised you most? Okay, so first I just... I was surprised that the trailer was. I hadn't been following that this show was being made or anything. So, so that I was just, snuck up on you. That snuck up on me. But then there were several other things that sneak up on you. And, you know, pause and fast forward a bit if you if you would like to enjoy the surprises and you don't want us to spoil it for you because we're about to give you trailer spoilers. Yo, and, and you should really see that if you're at all into this sort of thing, you should take a moment to, to have a look because it yeah. is special. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes so you can just pause Go look at the trailer Check and then out. come back and yep. listen. All right. So, w- did you gasp? You're, you- you're you're leading the witness because you know exactly what I'm going to say, <laughs> which is that Jerry Ryan's Seven of Nine is back. <sighs> Jerry and Ryan, arguably one of the most unsung, underappreciated characters in politics of the early 21st century. That's right, because thanks to Jerry Ryan, we had Barack Obama as president. Correct. And we'll we'll include a link in the show notes that explains this incredible turn of events. But you should know that were it not for, for Jerry Ryan and Seven of Nine, we'd be living in a different timeline. Right. And some of the story, just so you know, NSFW. Yes. Pretty yeah, spicy. So. so, yeah. But I think it makes perfect sense that if anyone's going to be showing up in the Picard series, it has to be Jerry Ryan, because when we look at these two, they are survivors of the same flavor of assault. And there probably aren't that many people living in the Federation who understand what it is to be assimilated by the Borg. And Seven of Nine, not only, you know, yeah, it's just the two of them. They've both seen that side of hell. And seven of nine and had to come back. Yeah, and and she she literally wears the the remnants right of her assimilation. Right, she she's got these augmentations on her face, mm-hmm. and and they're they're part of her body, and they they can't safely be removed. 
So she can't pretend that this wasn't part of her history for anyone else. And people respond to it. So they look at her face, right? This right. gets this gets so deep for me because her story and bias and... Yes. You know, it's just so... It's such a, a, a poignant, as Star Trek is wont to do, yeah. right? So poignant, such a poignant commentary on how we treat each other. But this this in indicator on her face of where she's been, which is universally unique, mm-hmm. right? Nobody's yeah, seen there, it. Yeah, there's no mistaking what, what happened that to her. would be. Right, yeah. what happened to her. And so the way that she subsequently gets treated and she, the insights that she has about people from a point of empathy is extraordinary, as well as her very hard exterior. That's right. She's a, she's a walking def, walking defense shield. From the little bit that we see from the trailer, she's not as stiff. What the hell are you doing out here, Picard? Saving the galaxy. And I went and did a little bit of digging on this because this was very interesting to me. And part of what Ryan said as part of her prep to re-embody this role, this, this role deep in her past, she also did not think this would be coming back into her future. And she really did not understand how to get into the role until she understood that she had, once she was back in the Federation, she had to act like a normal person in order to integrate. And once she understood... Oh, that just made my stomach. I get it. Yeah, once she got that, it made playing the role again a lot more clear for her. And so we feel a little bit of of that in the trailer where she's a little bit more colloquial, she's a little bit less stiff, and getting just just getting to see them play with that, uh, very exciting stuff. I, that just made my stomach just drop when you said that. Like, of course, and and the notion for her right of assimilation has so many layers. The, right. the notion to her of fitting in and what that must mean, like a safe fitting in versus a complete takeover. You know, there was an interesting thread on Twitter today and and, and I didn't totally see the connection until right now, which was started by our, our friend, uh, Marco Rogers, wonderful engineer, and we can, we can put it in, in the show notes, Politech, talking about catering to whiteness. Mm-hmm. And talking about, and several of us jumped in, and you know, my my reconciliation with catering to whiteness or assimilation in that in that regard is that it's a survival mechanism. Absolutely. And so, what Jerry Ryan is saying about Seven of Nine, and you know, in all other ways, she presents as a white woman. So I don't want to put an exact you know an exact mark on it, but you know, Star Trek just works in allegory, works in metaphor over and over and over again. And is conceivably set in a post-whiteness culture. It is, which is something that I've always appreciated. And and Jean-Luc Picard was one of the real, in my, in my life, looking at people who were put up as authority figures and sort of defaulted to cis, straight-ish, white man. Um, you know, Jean-Luc was the only one that I was like, yeah, he's the right guy. Like, he was the right guy to be captain. He, he He's an excellent leader and so sometimes when people challenge the work that i do and they say oh you just don't value any white men or you think all white men are the same i know it's silly to think of a fictional character in a way but he's an awesome like archetype for anybody of any background to aspire to he definitely leverages his privilege at points right that that you can't escape star trek was still made by americans on earth right 
and they had their own biases and it's incredibly heteronormative and it, it's got its own blind spots and limitations. Of course. So it's it's by no means a perfect, you know, anything. But so much exploration has been done with it that when Jerry Ryan says she had to think about how would she survive the Federation, right? And get any kind of authority, get any kind of credibility and survive. She must have had to soften in a way that the younger version of herself would have been very uncomfortable with. And where I thought you were going with it is that she had to remember that Seven of Nine aged. You know, that that, that Seven of Nine has now seen more things. Well, uh, yes, that was absolutely it as, as well. It's like, you know, something like 20 years have passed in the story timeline here. And so what does that mean for a character that we haven't seen in, in two decades, in a generation, essentially? You know, one of the... We so undervalue age. Mm. I am positive I did this when I was younger. I am so sure that I just thought that older people were, you know, it was just like completely out of touch. And as I've gotten older, it's so clear to me what is needed by having older people in a, in a workplace in, in some ways just to maintain some perspective. Right. And to say, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. I've seen this before. Like sometimes when you walk into a place, when, when I go and talk to a client and they're really freaking out about, you know, what's going on vis-a-vis -vis diversity, equity, and inclusion, or, you know, whatever, they're just really panicked about it, they're really anxious about it. It is so, I get so much mileage now at age 46 by looking at someone and going, hey, it, it's totally okay. This is everything I've seen before. It's not okay to let it keep going, but this is all within the realm of what every other organization and company I've ever worked with has seen. Now it's time to fix it. You haven't inv invented a completely new fuck-up. No. They, I can tell you the last time I saw an, a completely new fuck-up. It's, it's been years. Years since a brand new, unprecedented fuck-up. Wow. <laughs> right? I mean, humans humans be like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're, we're largely spinning and looping inside of our own ongoing, repeated failures. And, and traumas. And, and traumas, absolutely. yeah. yeah. And that ends up being a good segue to Woo. talk about some of our, our our book club. Welcome to Danilo and Nicole's book club. We both read Super Pumped. Mm. Ooh. By Mike Isaac. For the uninitiated, Super Pumped is all about the rise and catastrophic fall of Travis Kalanick's Uber. And it is rife with so many interesting stories about the workplace and so many preventable issues for work and we we just we have a lot to talk about with it but why don't we start with the title of the book which is super pumped which refers to one of uber's 14 original company values and one of them was called super pumped super pumped Nicole, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I kind of know because I've been around this concept in my own career. I think there's a much better and more inclusive way of saying, like, we want you to maintain some excitement for what we're doing. But this was about the, the broiest, most exclusive way it could be. This it, was like cult-like devotion, yeah. not just for the organization, but for the particular kind of work that the organization tried to reward. Right. And, you know, there are so many trappings in 
trying to say, not only do I want you to adhere to these values, right? Let's say the values are, are something else that are much more like actionable, right? Like we maintain the highest levels of integrity, which is obviously not one of Uber's values. Um, but, you know, to say, not only do I want you to uphold that value, here's how I want, here's how I want you to behave. You got to be super pumped about everything. And so the interesting thing about this is I just, I just, guess there was nobody around him who said and how will this translate given the given the vision you have for global domination how do you think folks in india folks in germany folks in wherever you're wherever you're gonna be how are you gonna translate super pumped and it makes me think about you just you feel like super pumped is such a culturally specific oh bay area bro notion (laughs) I mean, I think that it has permeated outside of there, but yeah, that's it's clearly that's where its origins are. It's it's colloquial enough that you know it didn't come out of like high finance, mm-hmm. right? But it's the same kind of kind of broy exclusive culture that says, "Yeah, like fists in the air, you're super pumped." I mean, okay, you're Puerto Rican, I'm Mexican. When was the last time you saw somebody from your own community community look at you and go, "Aren't you super pumped?" I've never heard a single human being <laughs> of any stripe use the phrase super pumped. And, and so, I mean, I think we get we get super pumped over soccer. <laughs> we get super pumped over, you know, other cool stuff. But that no, that that's just you being excited. Like I really I really <laughs> read super pumped inside of their cultural context to be this conviction that one's energies are to be used in a particular place in service to particular goals and that somebody who doesn't feel that commitment to using their energy does not belong right and that you know it's not enough to do a good job you also have to keep a smile on your face so it reminds me of a tech company i worked with years ago that had engineers who were distributed globally and in doing, doing code review for one another, American engineers and German engineers kept having this communication gap. And it didn't take very long to figure out that in doing code review, the Americans would largely say, this is awesome. This is amazeballs. I'm super pumped about, about your code. I, I don't know what they would say, but it, it was very much of that flavor, right? Coming out, right out of Silicon Valley, they were doing a bit of emotional labor in support of their colleagues' work. That's right. And then the Germans would do code review and put the code review back to the Americans and they would say things like, I see nothing wrong with this. This is good. Um, or like a check mark, right? This is adequate. Right, which to we learned upon, you know, when you really look at the, at the problem and start to, to ask each other, well, what are you meaning? Those are high compliments from a German engineer because it is obviously always culturally situated. It is always culturally contextualized. And to a German engineer saying, I see nothing wrong with this, is basically an American saying, OMG, this is perfect, amazeballs. So no one disagreed here, but there was a, there was a different expectation for what a supportiveness looked like. Right. And, and once we understood how to translate and we say from the Germans saying, I see nothing wrong with this is equivalent to the American, whatever, I'm super pumped about this, then we were good. 
The other expectation that's really unrealistic that this puts on workers is that if you are not demonstrating this level of enthusiasm, you are not a going to be a valued employee. Well, and, and a, a sidebar with that is that they really had high expectations for what that even looked like right. to the point where they wouldn't serve dinner until 8 p.m. So you really had to be working late in order to feel supported in your commitment to Uber. Anything earlier, going home earlier than when the dinner was being served meant that you were not really showing this commitment. Right, and Super Pumped is the insurance on top of which you shouldn't be complaining. So I want you to work 12, 16-hour days. And if you're not excited to work those days, there's something wrong with you. Right, there's something wrong with you if you are not Super Pumped at working this much this often um so that's where the insurance comes in is like we work hard um and be super pumped about it not even working hard working a lot and this way it's not the company's responsibility if you aren't feeling great about working for uber it's because you aren't displaying the super pumped value and therefore you fucked up and you should see yourself out so that's they right. can replace you with someone who will display this super pumpedness that's right interestingly though when you ask former employees of Uber, or even current employees of Uber, which of the original 14 values really resonated with them or they thought took a real, had a real stronghold in the company, Super Pumped ends up being one of the ones. And so it was a good title for Isaac it was a, it was per, It was perfect. I mean, it, it, was, it is really the one phrase, it's the, it's the Uber specific phrase that pays. Let's talk about the design of the office. <laughs> Because offices are, are, to me, such an interesting reflection of values and aspirations. One of the things that they mention in the book is that like many Silicon Valley offices, Uber really wanted to reach for power through their office design. And they're not the first or only company that tried to have a White House situation room style <laughs> facility inside of their physical plant. Their office design was to indulge the founder, Travis, who really liked to pace. And so whatever else is going on to suit the needs, the whims of one particular person, the entire office has been designed. I mean, is, that, is that the right way to come I think it? that's absolutely right. And, and, and the other thing it tells you is the priorities of the company, right? Making Travis happy. Right, making Travis happy. Now, I don't know if you've been inside that office. I've never seen it in person. I have, I have attended several things in, in this office over the years, and I, so I've been there a few times. Um, the way that it was described to me the first time I went in as a guest was that it was designed to purposely be frustrating and confusing so so just all of the typical sadistic uber travis shit reflected in the office and and was it confusing oh totally it, it is what was confusing about it <laughs> so there's there's the pacing there's a it's set up like you can take laps right so there's like a like a little racetrack right there's a little racetrack around it which you wouldn't necessarily understand to be a racetrack until somebody was like oh this is supposed to be so you know so somebody could pace around it around around it 
Um, it's more like, you know, Star Wars sets, they're, they're on an Imperial ship and they're running around and it's like corridor after corridor and you sort of, they kind of start to look alike and you're not really sure which is which. It's a lot like that. And then it is purposely poorly lit. And I, and I don't know if purposely? it is still this way, but it was purposely poorly lit. Why? Why I just, I couldn't tell you. I just, I just kept asking. I kept saying, because of course I, I'm particularly interested in culture. And I kept asking the person questions like, why is that corridor dark? And it would be like, yeah, that's just the way we keep it here. It was more like going to the Winchester Mystery House. If you've ever been, <laughs> if you've ever been a tourist in the Bay Area where just like doors lead to weird things. There are good people who have worked there for a long time and will defend it. And I, and I have to respectfully say, it feels like a single supervillain's lair more than it feels like a place where humans do work. So, so it's a reflection of somebody's need to flex. I mean, yeah. And to, to create, maybe it's a, a mental model to ensure that people are walking around in his mind. I don't, I don't know, but it was enough. It was striking enough the first time I saw it that I, that I went, and I've been to some wild tech offices. Sure. I've probably been to most of the wild, <laughs> the wild tech offices. And this one for sure is the one that for me, I would look at others and go, douchey, douchey, you know, like in the back of my head, like this is obnoxious. Um, this is, you're trying too hard. But this one was, it, it, it was one of the only ones where I kind of looked over my shoulder. I was like, ooh. So you just felt uneasy. You you felt uneasy in your skin. The feeling I had more than anything else was wondering how there could be so many people who could be comfortable working in an office that looked like this or that was laid out this way. So so you were off balance and the off balance feeling didn't go away. And, right. and it sounds like what the book describes is that Travis really likes to pit people against one another. And so his worldview was that you pit people against one another and whatever comes out of the kind of mudslinging bare knuckle fight that he has set up is the best worker, the best outcome and setting up an office that makes people feel off balance feels very much of a piece with that point of view. You're creating an arena rather than creating a safe place for people to figure out how to accomplish things together. Yeah, and I feel like folks who later on were surprised by Travis being as diabolical as he was and as brutal as he was inside, you know, around like market expansion and those kinds of things, folks who were shocked by it, I just, I, I, I really want to know like what... Were you not paying attention? Yeah, what cues were you picking up on? What? And this is not to blame people for somebody else's behavior, right? Let's not act like we couldn't predict what this guy did. Right, and I and I think that where people have been dishonest with themselves, um, in looking back and like clutching pearls, is y'all knew Travis was going to make you rich. And and he would keep saying this yes. to people who were displeased with him is. His ongoing get out of jail free card, according to the book, was I'm going to make you so rich. And he was telling the truth. Early investors and early employees, they got incredibly rich. Early investors got incredibly rich and sort of wagged their fingers. Oh, Travis, you're a bad guy. Thanks. We're well, just counting our stacks of money. 
And early employees, like, oh boy, yeah, that culture was tough. It, I don't know how, you, like, you can hold two opposing views in your head at the same time, but I think that there's a level of dishonesty that people are having with themselves over what they decided to value in the moment that they decided to get in bed with, with him and Uber. When we look at how Uber treated the municipalities that it had to deal with in order to expand into new markets. You said this earlier before we got started, and I think it's a really important point. Uber treating its expansion into new markets essentially as hostage-taking of cities mm -hmm. tells you everything you need to know about Uber, about Travis, about the company's priorities and values and i don't even mean the values of whatever it has printed up in an employee handbook but just in terms of its reflexive priorities what uber wanted to do was take whatever was not nailed down the this the sentence that i love so much that, that mike isaac wrote was uber treated each market less like a negotiation and more like a hostage situation it was that you know that ask for forgiveness not for permission model and they were calculating, according to this book, they were calculating in their margins how much it would cost to just pay fines. Yeah, it was just a cost of doing business. Every single one of our UberX drivers gets, a, gets cited. It's going to cost us this much, but we're going to make that much. I think my frustration with the story of Uber is less so the fact that this man took capitalism to its most extreme in every sense. Lots of companies do this, and that's why we call them successful. Jeff Bezos is doing this with Amazon to take capitalism to its most extreme, right? <laughs> like you said, take everything that isn't nailed down, right? Capitalism to its extreme. The frustration with me is that Travis was honest about this with everybody from the beginning. Well, let me, let me, this is shocking. I want to step in and defend some of the early uber supporters for a moment uh in part because i was an early uber supporter before, as was i because here's here's the messy piece of this there was one area where uber's thesis was completely accurate and that was specifically that san francisco's taxi situation was untenably broken there were no incentives to do it right, and it was impossible to get a car. Things were unpredictable, and that city is not an easy city to get around. The public transit is not comprehensive. It doesn't run at all hours. So there was so much broken specifically in San Francisco, and so Uber being in a position to right this particular wrong, I think, created a bias that they then benefited from long after the justice of their behavior ran out. It was good for them to do what they did at a certain point, and then as soon as the Uber X factor entered the equation, we start to see a decline in the ability to support Uber, I think, if you're an ethical person. Okay, so 
I would I just went hard on this to you know just prior. I too really was enamored by early Uber and and for me there were three arguments to be made in three impact arguments to be made in favor of Uber. One is exactly what you said that San Francisco had this incredible problem and Uber saw itself solving it and they did. That's true. Two is that it was completely maybe not legal, but completely acceptable to not pick up certain fares because they didn't look like people that you'd want in your car, which is... Sure, there's racism all over. Right, yeah. racism all over. And and the early argument that I that compelled me for Uber was they can't turn you down. They don't know who you are. They have to pick you up. And, nobody, and there's no exchange of cash. So there's no like, am I going to get robbed? Am I, you know, either way, right? It was... The system protected both sides of the transaction. Right, by not revealing itself like, okay, if I'm picking up a black man on this corner, I am now contractually obligated to do that. And Uber will find out if I stiff him and drive away. Right. So that was that was reason number two that I was like, oh, yeah, I've definitely seen, experienced this, you know, in cities all over. The third one which was pretty personal is that my uncle is a limo driver in LA. He drives all kinds of people, all kinds of places, famous, not famous. So he's a black car driver. And most of his days are spent waiting and he's not getting paid. He's waiting to be dispatched. He's waiting on a single client. He, you know, he's got to sit in, in his, in or near his car for five, six hours at a time, you know, or he'll be at the airport waiting and a plane is delayed and, you know, it, so we're just we've underutilized these resources, right? And 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 his life, he he could be making additional money turning on this app and driving other people to and from the airport or wherever they need to go, and that would be good for my uncle, right? And so for me, the third one was cool. Yeah, I know the lives of black car drivers because I'm related to one, and this would be awesome to put more money in their pocket. Great, great, great. That was so. What quickly became clear is that was never the end-all be-all. That ends up being the Uber story is that at every single point, nothing was ever enough. There was no win which was complete enough. They were never satisfied. And I think that Uber is maybe the perfect example of what I've been calling cancer capitalism, where you have these organisms that need to grow and it doesn't matter how hard they harm the things around them. If they keep growing, that's good enough. I think it finds its roots in colonization. I mean, you and I have talked about this several times before on, on our podcast that colonizer capitalism is... We don't have enough here, system so we're going under. to open a new frontier of our economy and plunder right. whatever we can get from that to continue having the money we want here. Right. It's just manifest destiny, right? And we're going to explore and we're going to expand and we're going to grow and we're going to be on every continent and we're just going to gobble up the world with this business model and, you know, just argue over time that the benefits outweigh the detriments. Really, the story here has got to be about the drivers, the most exploited, undervalued. Um, disposable. They, they were treated as disposable resources by Uber. Right. I do try to take cabs 
when I'm in cities that are still dominated by cabs and that where cabs are still available. That's my, that's how I'm trying to navigate this as I travel. Um, but I would get into Ubers and just ask people, how's it going? Like, how do you like driving for, for Uber? And the stories are just remarkable. If you've ever, if you've ever gotten to a point where you can get that kind of rapport with a, with a, with a driver, listen to the stories, really listen. Um, I would say don't do it in a creepy way because their jobs are also on the line. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so what do you think about Uber? But if you know folks who, who drive for Uber or, you know, you like, and those of you who are, who are listening, who also drive, like we, we know, and it's this, we're kind of in this stuck situation where I'm not about to go, hey, you shouldn't be able to drive for Uber because that's a, in these times, that's a real source of, of some money for people on a flexible schedule. I get it. I get it. I get why people drive. I don't get why Uber treats them so badly other than pure greed. Also, it's funny because you look at Uber and it's a really inefficient means of solving this problem when you see it from a certain scale. It shouldn't be necessary. The technology is really straightforward. It shouldn't be necessary for so much of this money to be siphoned off to San Francisco when it is a really straightforward technology to do the dispatch the way you are doing it on a city level. Mm -hmm. So... And there, there are multiple cities that have, with varying success, tried to set up their own kind of knockoffs of mm -hmm. the Uber app-based dispatch system. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot to this that hurting people is part of the business model, but it really doesn't have to be. And that takes me to maybe my favorite anecdote from Isaac's book here, where a bunch of his top lieutenants went to an offsite and their presidents of ride sharing had commissioned this in-depth study with surveys of customers. And one of the big takeaways was that they saw Uber, the customers, as a product that they liked and a service that they liked, but that they didn't have a great feeling about the company. They saw the company as a bunch of young bro bullies. And Kalanick barges into this offsite and starts quibbling with the notion that Uber could be a bunch of young bro bullies. And right as this is happening, Bloomberg drops a dash cam video of Kalanick berating one of his drivers who was just trying to provide some feedback up the chain that he was in a rough financial situation because of decisions Uber had made. I mean, he, the quote is, I don't believe it, man. I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't which, see it. Which is such a confession. Like, no, <laughs> you, you don't see it. That's part of the problem. That's, right. that's the issue we're all having here is that you, Travis, don't have the self-awareness of the social impact of your everyday decisions. That's right. And... Again, the promise of stacks and stacks of money will cause people to do strange things that they n normally wouldn't do. And and tolerating this behavior is definitely one of them. I think this is one of the one of those byproducts of capitalism, right? Where you go, well, everywhere from I've got to pay my bills or I've got to get a little bit of money for a meal, so I'll tolerate terrible behavior all the way to I 
you know, my stock is worth millions and millions of dollars and I'll tolerate behavior. It, it happens at all levels. And I, having been in, in situations with clients where they've had to make executives see that their own actions ha- had made a problem much worse, it is extremely hard to do. It is shockingly hard to do to, ha- to get somebody with that level of otherwise perceived success, right? to see themselves as being a detriment, a liability to the thing that they built. It's unfathomable to so many of these folks. Um, and, and until the video proof came out, it didn't seem that there was going to be much that even his own company could do to curb his behavior and to curb his um, you know, voracious, insatiable appetite for conquering the next, the next market. This was a culture that could not just win gracefully. This was a culture that wanted to grind others beneath their heel. And I think it ends up being a pretty common Silicon Valley event because so much of what these startups are about are, it it comes down to hyper growth. And you take this thing that was able to fit inside of an apartment and inside of a few years it's got 10,000 employees Mm -hmm. and so this hyper growth feature of technology companies leads to a really frustrating blind spot I feel which is that you've got these underdogs who start off as underdogs they develop extraordinary power because they succeed in their growth and then Having done all of that growing, they've got all of this additional power and leverage, but they don't update their worldview from that of the underdog. And so in Uber's case, they kept behaving as though they were so small and so scrappy and they were just doing what they could to survive. And who could be mad at them for that? This is text story of Icarus (laughs) over and over and over again where they go, well, we look at what we've what we're accomplishing. Can you believe what we're accomplishing? I mean, but we're just these scrappy nerds who, you know, couldn't get a date in college, and we're, you know, and mm. you go, okay. At a certain point, there's the dog that catches the car, and you go, okay, you're winning, and now, ouch. Now what? Ouch! You're now you're hurting. Okay, you're really hurting everybody. You're really hurting people, and there has to be this point at which, this is what I look to boards and advisors to do. But they so often don't because all we're trying to manage to is growth in that bottom line. We're right. only trying to manage to that share price. That's it. And so when you're trying to do that, you'll you'll cut you'll you'll cut people's fingers off if it means you're going to get more money at the end if your margins get larger. And so you go, all right. A responsible advisor would say, okay, you're winning. You've invented a whole new thing. Let's talk about how we want to, you know, what our legacy is. Let's talk about what winning looks like. Let's talk about what collaborations for impact, social impact look like. Let's, but that wasn't, the, that wasn't ever in their DNA. And by the, ta- the time they bought, brought another CEO on, it, it, it appears potentially to have been too late. There isn't anything to really offer around this but cautionary tales. You can prioritize different things. You can construct systems that pursue different goals but 
we're going to keep getting these same toxic systems over and over again until people get it into their heads that there are consequences. And I just, I, I take my hat off to Mike Isaac for the incredibly deep reporting he did mm -hmm. to bring this story to light. Mm -hmm. There's so much personal color for so many of the individuals who are involved in the situation. This book is absolutely a cautionary tale. And the, the tragedy would be if people thought this was a singular story. If people thought, oh, it was just this one guy named Travis who was thinking this way. This is such incredibly detailed reporting about the psyche of Silicon Valley. It's culture. It is, it is absolutely a story about Silicon Valley culture because every company that has gotten any kind of valuation that puts them on the map or the names of big investors. This is the dream. Uber lived the dream. They're, they're just an extreme example of what everyone wanted in the first place. That's right. And we're just going to measure companies over time on how Uber-y they were or weren't, right? Like how, how vicious were they willing to get with Uber being sort of a maybe top of the top of the scale. How much like Uber were you willing to get? But every company is forced to have this conversation by investors or by founders who are like, this is the play. Early investors, early employees are going to get out. We're going to take the bags of cash and be gone. And by the time anybody comes in and thinks they can clean it up, it doesn't matter to us because we got the money. We got the bags. Everyone that... All those early people who were up eating dinner starting at 8 p.m. and would stay, you know, stay in that office, this is what they believe to be their just reward. And I think it's one of the most up-to-the-second mm -hmm. descriptions of how Silicon Valley and the larger technology and financial industries work, how they interact together. Uh, it's really worth your time. Have a look at this book. We've got the link in the show notes. You're going to have a good time, having a terrible time. So we've got a question. Ooh! And, and this, was, this was an interesting question, and I love it because we don't have an easy, simple answer for it. Uh, and those are always our favorites. So Austin asks via Twitter, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how unions could work with DNI folk to push change through since companies are taking so damn long on their own. So the unions are coming to Silicon Valley, perhaps. Uh, we heard about union organizing at NPM. We heard about the Steelworkers Union unionizing Google contract workers. So there's, there's union talk in the air. And so this makes this question uh, extra relevant right now. The easy part is Unions are helpful in that they protect workers on basic abuses of things like time theft, right? Making sure that people get paid for the time that they work and people get paid for uh, overtime if that's what everyone decides is their priority, right? Uh, people get the time off that they need on the terms that they need. Mm -hmm. So those protections for workers are good and marginalized workers are always in need of more protections generally because they get hit hardest by workplaces that don't work right. But from there, I feel like the union story gets complicated from a DNI perspective. I mean, it, it, it does in part because there's so much trust that has to be built with a union. 
really, really quickly. And one of the patterns we've seen um, in Silicon Valley with the last few uh, companies that were trying to unionize and, um, you know, there was a big misstep in not bringing on into a coalition of folks who are pro-union bringing on those who are extremely marginalized within the workforce, specifically through people of color, uh, folks who are underrepresented in, in lot, lots of different ways, um, to make sure that, that the employee resource groups or affinity groups that comprise um, you know, most of those that underrepresented workforce, that those folks are on board for what unionizing is going to mean and that the ERGs themselves are in lockstep with the, with the unions so that we can understand how priorities don't start to compete with each other in ways that are really harmful to folks who are already vulnerable in a system. Here, here's how it works. Um, you know, the union has gotten, a union has gotten really good at protecting workers with seniority, right? And really putting a lot of resources in protecting workers who've been there uh, uh, for a certain amount of time. But the most recent workers who were hired into most tech companies are where lots of the people of color are um, because the company only recently got got a, a clue about diversity, equity, and inclusion, so they've diversified their workforce. But those folks are now vulnerable to a system that, that favors seniority over other types of, of contributions to a company. And that can get really dicey. And if you're not willing to hammer that out um, with folks who are really marginalized in these in these systems, then the chances of your your union efforts succeeding are decreased significantly. Um, now, if people of color are leading on the union, the unionization conversation, that's probably a better starting position. Um, but don't be shocked if you as a person of color are like, I don't know about unions. And if you are not a person of color and you're like, why can't people see that you, why can't all people see that unions are the way for us to go? There's a lot more nuance to it than that. And I want to be very clear, personally, in my life, I am extremely pro-union, extremely, extremely pro-union. I think it's the Same. last the last best protection for workers, especially wage earning workers, especially those who don't have tons of legal protections on them. One of my sisters is a union organizer and, and, and rep, and I'm very pro-union. It's the how do you get there where people fall down. It's not as a simple binary around unions are good, unions are bad. The, the implementation, just like any other organization, right. matters a lot. That's right. That's right. And so we overlook things and we go like, oh, a third of the workers want want us to unionize right or our half of the workers want us to unionize you got to cut the demographics of who that half is before you feel like you can before you can call victory because you may have created a schism by bifurcating your workforce that should be in a coalition with one another should all be on the same page by just saying hey we got a simple majority or hey we got the required whatever percent of workers to do this there are there are implications in implementation that that can hit impacted communities way harder. Now, you mentioned something interesting for me in this in the ERGs. And could you give us just a quick rundown of what an ERG is and how it works and what it does? Well, I can tell you what an ERG is. I can tell you how it should work. Shout out to GitHub's Black to Cats. Um, <laughs> the best ERG I've ever worked with. Um, so an ERG, Employee Resource Group, means that it's, it, it, it should be 
a group of employees who share a similar characteristic that has an impact on work. For example, race, for example, gender, um, sexual orientation. Often the first ERGs in a company will be the women's employee resource group to look out for the interests of women on the staff because they are underrepresented. Um, so when used well, leadership and other parts of, the, of an organization should leverage the collective viewpoints of a group of workers that are organized to be in conversation with one another, to share experiences, to talk about where things are going well, where things are hard, which managers are great for, for certain groups of people in, in looking out for professional development and those kinds of things. Like it's sort of where um, groups that have historically been excluded can share information about how the system works um, with, with their demographic in mind. So is, is it almost like a micro union with the micro bit being very important in that it's not large enough to have the collective bargaining impact that you might want, but it's also able to do some of those same uh, collective benefits for people? It should. I mean, it has no legal, no legal impact on the structure, right? As opposed to a union that would legally do collective bargaining and have a voting structure and that sort of thing. It's much more like, how do we exercise um, the social capital that we have as a group for the betterment of, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. So um, one very common uh, um, activity that an ERG might do is, let's say there's a Latinx ERG and they appeal to the company to sponsor scholarships for Latinx engineers to go to a conference, right? And we go, great, we're looking out for other people up and coming students, people who are trying to enter the, the space, people who are trying to get a leg up on their career. We got our company to sponsor um, scholarships for you to go to this great conference, right? That, and so it's about putting more emphasis on certain initiatives and, and laying out a list of priorities that the Latinx community wants in order to um, lift up the voices of and strengthen the voices of Latinx folks in the company and, and in tech overall. Great. That, that's, that's sort of the, a, basic, a basic structure. A more sophisticated structure um, is one where leadership and other parts of the organization actually get feedback and integrate much more seamlessly with the viewpoints of um, different pockets of the workforce to make sure that the, those pockets of the workforce aren't seeing problems that others are missing, right? It's the, it's the beauty of diversity. The big upshot is problem identification. So, hey, we're thinking of rolling out this new marketing campaign. We would like all the ERGs to review it and tell us how it, how it struck you when you saw you know, the storyboard of this ad campaign. Yeah. In a sophisticated structure, you can really leverage the viewpoint of your employee resource groups to make sure you're not out in the world you know, launching stupid ad campaigns or trying to relate to communities in ways that's really authentic, inauthentic. And ideally, you've got members of the marketing team who are also members of the ERG, but members of the marketing team who are, let's say, black, don't have to carry all of the viewpoints of black folks in the company on their shoulders. They can take it to an ERG and be a lovely bridge who says, okay, this is the ad campaign. Here's what we're thinking. Would love your feedback. Now it's much less contentious, like give us your blessing, black folks in the company and much more collaborative where you're like, yeah, the, the people who work on the, the marketing team are also people in this ERG. And so we are 
already going to be representing voices in a much more authentic way. That's a that's a sophisticated use of, of ERGs. So where an ERG exists, if you've got workers looking to organize, it sounds like your advice is that it would be essential to enroll ERGs in the union effort and make sure that they've got an important seat at the table because they've got not only all of these identity insights that are essential to success, but they've also got a lot of strong networks within the company. Right. And I think even if you don't have ERGs, to look at the leadership of whoever's leading the unionizing efforts among the workforce, you've got to get representation from lots of different pockets. If you don't have parents represented, if you don't have the black folks in your company represented, if you don't have single parents represented, if you don't have voice of women engineers represented, like you're going to miss really important information that could tank your your ability to unionize. On the other hand, what this conversation really surfaces for me is that if you're willing to have a curious mind and really explore all the angles of organizational possibility, there are so many things that you can build to make your company suck less. And isn't that actually what this podcast is all about? Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we get so unfortunately bogged down in the dysfunction because there is so much dysfunction to account for. But eventually you dig through enough of the wreckage and you can start to imagine things that simply work better. And so we hope that we give you a little bit of the fuel you need to start imagining the better things as much as we can offer you some practical tips to take the edge off of the things in the here and now. Good luck at work, everybody. Send us your questions. Please send us your questions. We need your questions. We love to chew on them and answer them and use them to make our show better for you. If you've got a question for us, of course, you can hit us up on Twitter. But if you're not on Twitter, you don't follow us there, or you otherwise are just not part of that universe, you can also go to ask.impossibletomanage.com. That is ask.impossibletomanage.com, where you can confidentially ask us any question you would like. We will not share any of your information. Thanks for uh, hanging out, Nicole. Thank you, Danilo. And uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you soon. Thank you.